1 John 2, 3 through 11. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I do not know him, or sorry, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing, and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. And that was a powerful video. I'm still kind of sitting with that one with three girls of my own. It's crazy. Um, First John, we are walking through this short letter all fall. We'll, we'll be here until Thanksgiving. Uh, and what John is doing, this is the Apostle John, we think, and what he's doing in this is writing to give his readers, to give us a sense of assurance that they have eternal life by articulating this is what a life looks like. When eternal life is active in somebody, this is the kind of life that results from it. So as you step into this kind of life, you can have assurance that you really, you're the real thing. Your faith is real and authentic. And um, I don't know if you guys have picked up on this yet uh, or not, but if you haven't, you will in a couple weeks. Uh, John's pretty straightforward. John doesn't pull a lot of punches. He's pretty black and white, and he, he hits you right just squarely in the nose half the time. I mean, I mean look at the, I was, as Bethany was reading, like verse 4, whoever says I know him but doesn't do what he commands is a liar. Like, okay, well, how do you really feel, John? Right? And I'm, my commentary, I was laughing. My commentaries uh, and scholars say this. John uses the technique of amplification. Uh, and well, that, of course, means you know what an amplifier does is it just turns up the volume. And it's like John is going to say something, and then he's going to turn up the volume and say it again and just say it louder and louder until we get it. And by the end of this letter, you'll be like, just stop yelling at me, John, please. Just stop yelling at me. And, and the reason, I think, is because he sees something very important that's at, at stake. And we talked about this the first week, but um, there's been some people who... Uh, who profess to be believers, but who have left the church, the churches that John is writing to. And there's a different kind of gospel and a different kind of lifestyle associated with that gospel that they're now buying into. And so the, the, the believers that are left behind are wondering, like, did we miss it? Are we, uh, are we the real thing or are they the real thing? What's going on? And so John is writing to say, no, let me remind you, this is what true Christianity, walking with Jesus looks like. And this is what it doesn't look like. 
So he's going to contrast a counterfeit version with the real version. And I don't know if you picked up on this, but John uses the word claim a lot in this short letter. So let me give you a couple uh, examples. Chapter 1, verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness. Verse 8. If we claim to be without sin. Verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned. And then in our passage today, chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him. And then again, chapter, uh, verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light. Okay, John is saying people can claim all sorts of things. It is not what you claim that makes you an authentic follower of Jesus. It's what your life actually speaks through the living of the life. So John is, is using amplification <laughs> to show us, here's what true faith in Jesus Christ looks like. These are the true criteria, and this is the litmus test for authenticity of faith. And his two litmus tests I've talked about this are these. Okay, we'll hear these repeated throughout this letter. That true believers walk in the light meaning they obey Jesus' commands, and true believers walk in love. They love one another. Those are the criteria. Because God is light, and God is love. And so fellowship with him is going to mean that we walk in the light, and we walk in in love. And we learned last week, John is not looking for perfection. That's not what he's saying. He's looking for a certain trajectory, that we are moving towards these things in our lives. Yes, we stumble. Yes, we fall, of course. But we're moving towards obedience, and we're moving towards love of one another. That's what authentic faith looks like. And those two themes we're going to hear for the next eight weeks or so in various ways. So um, today's passage, I want to approach it maybe a little differently than I sometimes do. Um, we're not going to walk verse by verse through the passage. Instead, I want, to, I want to take the passage as a whole today and just kind of think about it as a whole. Um, I want to point out a very basic connection that John seems to be making in this passage. And then I want to just ask like two very basic questions about that connection, okay? So how are we doing today? We're ready for this? Okay, you got your volumes turned up because the volume's going to get louder here? All right, here we go. Um, So I want to start by pointing out this basic connection that John is making, and it's the same one that Jesus himself made. And the the first week, um, I I told us that as you read this letter, you realize um, John was there. This is the Last Supper, right? The upper room. John was there the night before Jesus died. And it's very clear as you read this letter that there are some things Jesus said that night and there are some things Jesus did that night that made a very deep and lasting impression on John and that has really shaped who he is and what he thinks about faith. And so I want to remind you some things that Jesus said that night from John's gospel. Okay, here's what Jesus says. Remember this great metaphor, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. It gives this beautiful metaphor of remaining in him, and then this is what he says. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Not perfection, right, but a trajectory, keeping my commands. And then he goes on to say this, and this is my command, that you love each other as I have loved you. Okay? So here's the connection I see. Jesus says, I want you to abide in me. 
The way you do that is by obeying my commands. And by obeying my commands, what I mean primarily is that you love one another. That's how you abide in me. So there's this kind of triangle here. Or I could say these two foundations of abiding in Jesus, obedience and love. Okay, you see that? Clear connection, how that works in John 15. And you see that exact same connection being made in our passage, right? So look at verse 3 of our passage. Uh, It says this, We know that we have come to know him, and I'm equating that coming to know him with abiding in him. It's a certain kind of knowledge we gain of Jesus that is an abiding knowledge. We'll talk about that later. But we've come to know him how? If we keep his commands, right? And he goes on to say, someone who says I know him but but doesn't keep, keep his commands is a liar. But someone who does keep his commands... Love for Jesus is made, love for God is made perfect in that, all right? So we know that's that same connection if we obey his commands. And then he goes on in the second half of our passage today, especially verses 9 and 11, to talk about what? Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister, or anyone who loves a brother or sister, he goes on to talk about loving one another. The specific command, primarily in mind, is the commandment to love one another, brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, you see that same connection. Let me just talk about verse 7 through 8 first, just a second. Get that out of the way. Um, I don't know if you heard it when it was being read, but it's like, he's like, so uh, I'm writing not a new command, but an old command. Actually, I'm writing a new command. Did you, you hear that? Like, what's going on there? But the command he's talking about is the love command, what he goes on to say in verse 9. And he is saying, on the one hand, this is not a new command. Meaning this is not new information for you. This is, this is an old command. You received it when the gospel came to you around Ephesus. You came to faith in Jesus. From the very beginning, you heard that loving one another was the thing that Jesus wants you to do. It's not new information. It's, an, it's old information. And yet he says, and yet it is a new command. And I think what he means by that is this command is new in the sense that it is part of the new world that God is shaping and forming here. If you look at the second half of verse 8, he says this, right? Look at the end of verse 8. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. We looked at this image last week of this image of like a sunrise where in Jesus Christ, the sun has come. This new kingdom is dawning. And yet the daylight is not fully here, right? We're still, still living in this broken world. Yet the kingdom of God has come in some sense in Jesus Christ. The light, John says, is already shining. The newness of that kingdom is becoming present. And the fundamental dynamic of this new kingdom is love. It is creating a kingdom of love. And so it is a new commandment in the sense that it is part of this new kingdom uh, that Jesus is bringing. All right. So, but you see that same connection, right? You know Jesus, you obey his commands, and, and you love one another. These are the two pillars, and these are really the two pillars of John's whole message, right? Walk in the light, meaning obey his commands. Walk in love, meaning love one another. And I would even simplify it further to say, actually, it goes something more like this. We abide in Jesus by obeying his commands. But what is the primary command itself? It is the commandment to love one another. Okay, Paul says this. Love sums up all the commands. The com- the, loving one another fulfills all the individual commandments. Jesus himself says the same thing, right? He says at the, the, that final night, he says, uh, he washes their feet, right? And then he says this. By this, all people will know you're my disciples. By what? 
if you love one another. So really, there's one pillar, one could say, that in essence, what it means to abide in Jesus is to obey his commands, and primarily that command is the command to love. That love is the pillar of our relationship with Jesus. Love is the proof of our relationship with Jesus. Jesus says it very clearly. By this one thing, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So that's the basic connection you see in John 15. That's the basic connection you see here. And so that's the connection I wanted us to see this morning. And I want to ask just two basic questions then about that reality. If, if loving one another is the foundational pillar, I'm not saying it's the only pillar, but is the foundational pillar of our knowledge of God or our abiding in Jesus, I think there's two questions that um, really come, make sense to me. Um, the first question is this. Uh, what would happen if we just fully embrace that connection in our lives today? The next connection between knowing God and loving one another. Meaning, what if the primary criterion for whether we truly know God was this? Are we loving others well? What if the primary litmus test in our lives for, do I really know God or not? Do I really abide in Jesus or not? Was the question, this simple question. Am I becoming a more loving person? That that was the primary measurement that I used to test my spiritual growth and my spiritual maturity. Am I becoming a more loving person? Now, we would probably need to spend some time defining what love is, and we're not going to do that this morning, okay? But I I wonder, and I've asked this, I asked the same question this summer in our Deuteronomy series, but I wonder for you, if I were just to, we were just to have coffee this week, and I said to you, um, hey, do you feel like you're growing? spiritually these days? Like, how's your walk? Do you feel like you've been growing spiritually lately? I wonder how you would just think about answering that. Like, what would come to mind to give an answer to that question? And I think for myself, what would come to mind, actually, this wouldn't be something that would come to mind. I mean, I I would, if you asked me how you've been growing, I'd be thinking, what have I been reading lately? Right? What have I been thinking about? What have I been coming to understand more deeply, which would should be a good answer. I, I, might, I might go to some of my go-to sins in life and go like, have I done a better job of keeping those at bay lately? But what if instead I went to this question, which I think this would be the question. Am I, have I found myself more and more capable of loving people lately? Um, how is God changing me into a person who's more able to love those around him? Um, here's a great quote. Uh, the journey with Jesus is a journey towards becoming people of compassion, people who forgive, people who care deeply for others in the world, people who offer themselves to God to become agents of divine grace in the lives of others. In brief, people who love and serve as Jesus did. And I wonder, you know, if I were just to interview you, spouse or your close friends uh, or your coworkers or your kids and ask them the question, has this person, do you see these traits in increasing measure in this person's life? Do you see your mom becoming a person of greater compassion? Do you see your friend becoming someone who is more able to forgive? Do you see your coworker as someone who, who cares deeply for those around him or her? Um, what would they say <laughs> as a measure of your spiritual 
growth. And I wonder um, if that question was front and center, which I think Jesus would say it would be, I wonder how that would change how we approach our spiritual lives. Like, how would it change uh, when I read my Bible, if I have a quiet time in the morning or in the evening, how would this question change the way I read my Bible? As I read this, to go, you know, one of the most fundamental purposes of me reading this is so that I become increasingly a person who loves the way Jesus loved. Or as I come to church, I step in through those doors on a Sunday and go, you know, one of the primary outcomes, hopefully, of this, and there's lots of outcomes, but a foundational one is I step out being someone who is more able to love those around me. Or as I step into work on a Monday morning, the goal here is to become a person increasingly who is able to, to love. Or as I pray, I wonder what would happen if we, if we approached our spiritual lives recognizing this is what Jesus says, is that the marker of his followers is love for one another. Are you with me right now? You feeling this? Okay, I've, I've asked this question before, so I know this isn't something new, and I know it's quite basic. But that's the question. What if we lived as though this were the marker? And then the second question, and this is the one I, I really want us to think about. Um, well, if love is the criterion, then I think a, a, the really important question is, how do we become more loving people? <laughs> like if Jesus says the mark is that you love, well then it's a really important question you know, how does God actually change us into people who are more loving towards one another? Or to use the language of John's passage, what kind of knowledge of God leads to becoming a more loving person? Right? Look at verse 4 again. Uh, or no, let me look at verse 3. We, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says I know him but doesn't do what he commands, which is to love one another, is a liar. So apparently there's a kind of knowledge of God that someone could claim to have. I have come to know him, and yet that knowledge is not leading that person to becoming a more loving person, right? I imagine there's a kind of knowledge that a person can claim. There's maybe even a kind of knowledge that a person can have, or at least think he or she has, that isn't actually leading them to becoming a more loving person. So for the rest of the time, I want to ask the basic question, what kind of knowledge of God actually leads to us becoming more loving people? people. Do you understand the flow of my thinking? I think that's a really basic, important question. And so I want to try to answer that uh, simply today. But before I answer that, I want to put forward three kinds of knowledge of God that I think in and of themselves do not necessarily lead to becoming more loving people, all right? And these are all good things, but in and of themselves, they don't do this. So here's some inadequate knowledge of God. I think I'm on good biblical grounds for these, all right? Three ways we might know God that don't necessarily, in and of themselves, lead to us becoming people who love the way Jesus loved. Uh, Here's one. Uh, Mere theological knowledge. I'm a massive fan of theological knowledge. But what I'm talking about is simply uh, the intellectual pursuit of, of knowledge around theology or doctrine or things associated with God. It's that cerebral quest to understand, to fit the puzzle together in in our minds, that that in and of itself, as beautiful as that is, doesn't necessarily lead to us becoming more loving people. 
Um, the reason I know that is there's a group of people in the scriptures that had that and they weren't loving. We call them the Pharisees. Okay, these are people who had probably memorized their Old Testament. They thought and studied and pondered diligently the scriptures. They could have worked theological circles around most of us in this room. And all of that knowledge clearly did not lead to them becoming people who loved well. They were prideful. They were judgmental. They were critical. The common person did not experience their presence as forgiving and kind and gracious and loving. Uh, the demons themselves fit this category, right? The demons have great theology. It hasn't le- learned, it led to them being loving. And we could probably identify people in, in churches today who fit this bill. People who, you know, they just love to get in there and do their theological work. But all of that work uh, hasn't translated somehow to love in the practical relationships they find themselves in in life. And there's a great irony. I mean, you look at verse 11. Take a look at the end of our passage. It says, anyone who hates a brother or sister, that's a believer, is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They don't know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. You know, some people here consider themselves very enlightened. They would think, I'm an enlightened person. And John would say, well, if you don't love people, I don't care what you think you know, you are still living in the darkness. Because if that knowledge isn't leading to love, you're in the darkness. All right? So there, there's, that's a kind of knowledge that in and of itself Clearly, we would all say by experience and through Scripture does not lead uh, to love. Uh, Here's another one. Um, Just engaging in Christian cultural practices over time, I think we could say that doesn't necessarily lead to love. What I mean is people who show up to church regularly, people who are in small groups regularly, people uh, maybe who tithe regularly, um, who engage in kind of the, you know, you, you pray before meals, sort of the Christian cultural practices that, that we do. And you do that for long periods of time. That doesn't in and of itself necessarily turn people into loving people, that people who love the way Jesus loved. Um, I know that biblically because there was a group of people who did that for centuries. And it was the Israelites in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. This is a whole nation of people who, for the most part, observed these, these cultural practices, right? They went to synagogue. They rested on the Sabbath. Um, they performed animal sacrifices. They were, the men were circumcised. They ate kosher. They did all the cultural religious stuff that God asked them to do. But the prophets again and again say, you're doing all this Christian stuff, but you're not doing the fundamental stuff. You're not, there's no justice for the poor. There's, there's no love for the neighbor. There's no compassion for the needy among you. Like we're, this isn't translating to people who love in this world the way that, that God would want you to love. And I bet we could identify people today who fit this bill. Maybe people who have been going to church their whole lives and been doing kind of the stuff their whole lives, and yet when you watch them, like, gosh, they're just, they're harsh, they're hard, they're judgmental, they're, um, they're not gracious, they're not forgiving, um, they're really bad in conflict, relational conflict. I mean, the, the, none of this stuff is translated to truly loving those around them. All right, one more, and then we'll move towards the great golden answer, at least my answer. Um, You can argue with me afterwards. Um, Spiritual experiences in and of themselves don't necessarily translate to love. I mean, I had this amazing encounter with God. I went to camp, and oh my gosh, it was awesome. Or I was down at the beach the other day, and God just said some awesome things to me. Or I was in the worship service, and just... Spirit just, you know, poof, just came on me and, and did awesome things. That doesn't in and of itself necessarily lead to love. And you see that because there's a group of people in, in the scripture that had this. 
uh, and they weren't very loving. It's the Corinthians. If you've ever, ever read Paul's letter, the fir- first Corinthians, this was a church that had, had experienced some pretty profound spiritual stuff. Um, the, the gifts of the Spirit had been poured out on them. People were prophesying. There was healing taking place. People were speaking in tongues. There was um, all sorts of just pretty beautiful, amazing things happening. But under the surface of all of that spiritual stuff, there was all these factions within the church. And the, the rich were not loving the poor. And the different people said, hey, we're better than you. And there was all of this relational tension such that Paul had to write chapter 13 about love. <laughs> love is patient. Love is kind. He's saying, hey, these are, all these things are pretty cool. But let me show you a more excellent way. It's the way of, of love. And I'll bet we could identify people in our lives today who, who maybe are having these pretty epic spiritual experiences and God's telling them to do all this stuff. But yeah, but that, guy, that person feels really self-absorbed still. And for some reason, that, those aren't translating to a person who just really loves well. So I think all three of these are really, really important. I think all of these are really, really great. I long for all three of these in my life. But it seems clear to me biblically and experientially that any one of these in and of themselves does not necessarily lead to the greatest commandment of all, which is love. All right, Dave, so what's the answer? It's simple. It's a quick fix. It's a, just a pill to swallow. It's just a nice technique. And you become a more loving person. No, here's what I would say. And I, I throw this out as a point of conversation, as a community conversation for you with your friends, your spouse, whatever. This is what I think the kind of knowledge that John is talking about. I would define as walking in fellowship with Jesus over time. There's no technique. There's no quick fix. It is walking in fellowship with the person of Jesus and doing that over time, over a lifetime to be specific. That this is the kind of journey that actually transforms people into those who love. Um, I say that, um, I want to look at, look at verse 5 in our passage. The second half of verse 5 says this. Um, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to walk in him must walk as Jesus did. So that's why I use the word walk. Literally, it is the, 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 the Greek word is walk. We talked about that word last week. It's a walking around with Jesus. And I want to spend just the last couple minutes talking about what this, what I mean by this. What does this look like biblically? Okay? And I think it means two things. I'm going to focus on the first one today. But I'm getting this from verse 5 and 6. The first is this. Um, This is a walking in him. The second is it is a walking as he walked. And you do that over time. Okay? I get this walking in him from the verse, end, end of verse 5. Whoever, this is how we know that we are, what does it say? This is how we know that we are? In him. Then whoever claims to walk in him. So there is, a, there is an in him thing that we are supposed to experience. And then there is a walking as he walked. What it says, living as, as Jesus did. So I want to just tease that first one out for you today and mention the second one, and, um, and then we'll be done. So I think, I think it's this. I think it is, is learning over time to walk in him, that that is what changes people into people who love. 
It is an ever-deepening understanding and experience of being in Jesus Christ. Okay, now what in the heck does that mean? To be in Jesus Christ. And let me just say, this is the gospel. Maybe you haven't heard the gospel this way, but this is how the New Testament writers articulate the gospel. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are united to the person of Jesus. You are now in Jesus Christ through faith. Okay? And most of us didn't grow up hearing this. We heard it the other way. We heard um, Jesus is in us, right? Like, what did you all hear? You're supposed to pray a prayer to, to accept Jesus into your heart. Right? That's the metaphor that we grew up with, is, is by faith, Jesus is now in you. That is biblical, but by far, the more common biblical expression is actually, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are now in Jesus Christ. And what that means, practically speaking, is this. All that Christ is, and all that Christ has accomplished, we get to enjoy the benefits of all of that, because we are in Christ, so let me give you the metaphor. I may have given these before, but this, is, uh, this metaphor is super helpful for me. It's going to seem strange. Just bear with me. Here's the metaphor. <laughs> so this comes from a book that I read called Union with Christ. And um, he, uh, the author talks about this young woman. She was in her early 20s. Uh, who was really struggling in life. She, was, uh, she had anxiety. She had uh, depression. She, you know, she was in her early 20s. She was trying to figure out her life. She had very low self-esteem. She didn't have many friends. She was lonely. And she just really struggled with life. But she worked for Disney. And she was one of the Disney characters walking around the park. In fact, she would play the role of, of Mickey. She was probably, yeah. So she would play the role of Mickey throughout the park. So what would happen is she would come to work And she would put on the Mickey suit, and she would literally experience life in Mickey, right? She would be in Mickey, and she would walk around in Mickey, and all of a sudden, all these, you know, these kids would run up to her, right, and give her hugs, and and these parents would come over, and and she experienced the joy, she experienced the, the fame of being in Mickey, And it really was this beautiful experience for her that kind of transformed her own sense of identity and and helped her to grow out of some of what she was wrestling with. And I know, crass and strange, right? But that is kind of the metaphor that I think we're encouraged to, to have, that we, through faith, we are now in Christ. And so all the benefits that Jesus has, we now have because we, by faith, are in him. All right, I'll, I'll take that off if that starts to feel sacrilegious over time. Um, <laughs> Jesus is God's beloved son. God loves him. God delights in him. God approves of him in every way. And he perfectly obeyed his father. And then he died a, a death for the sins of the world. And he conquered death. And he rose from the grave. And now he stands with his father in heaven with all authority and honor and praise. And because we are in him, the New Testament says, all that is his is now ours by faith, because we live in him. All right, I'm going to just throw a barrage of verses at you right now. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 is all simply an explanation for what it means to be in Christ. I've highlighted in Christ in these verses. This, just, let me, this is how chapter 1 begins. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in, in the heavenly realms with 
every spiritual blessing because we are in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. In him, we were also chosen in order that we might bring praise and glory to God. All these spiritual blessings that are ours in him. Chapter two, he reminds us of what we were before we were in Christ. We were dead in our sins and transgressions, but then what happened? God made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. Paul's saying, in Christ you are chosen for adoption. You're forgiven. You have redemption. Right? You've been raised up. And and in Jesus, you will be an object of God's kindness for all eternity. He's going to shower his kindness on you forever and ever because you are in his son, Jesus. Amen. And then in chapter 3, he switches the metaphor and talks about Christ in us. And he, may, he offers this prayer. Okay, I pray that out of his glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. What? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp just how wide and long and high and deep this love of Christ is. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul says, my prayer for you is you are filled with fullness because you are in Jesus Christ. And all that is his is yours by faith. Okay? He sums it up in Colossians. You have been given fullness in Christ. And I'm arguing walking in Christ is a walking in the fullness that we have in Christ. And that is what turns people into loving people over time. Because what keeps people from loving well? Think about in your life. When you don't love well, what, what, was, the, what was the barrier? What was the obstacle that kept you from loving well. There's a lot of answers. My sin, my selfishness, whatever. Here's how I would answer that question. You know what it is? It's actually my own neediness that keeps me from loving well. I need control, and that keeps me from loving well. I need to be respected. Uh, I need people to like me. Um, I need to be right all the time. Uh, I need to be affirmed and acknowledged. And when those things don't happen, it's really hard for me to love well. I mean, think about those of you who are married. I mean, there's some hard marriages out there. And if you ever sit down with a, a, a married couple that they're struggling, and wh- what you'll always hear is, I'm not getting what I need, right? I'm not, I'm not getting, the, I'm, I'm not getting the, the attention I need. I'm not getting the respect I need. Uh, I'm, I'm not being listened to. I'm not getting the sex I need. You know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not getting the time I need, right? That these are under, very real needs. 
And in that sense of neediness, it becomes very hard to just love someone well because there's so much that you're needing in that moment, understandably so. Think about friendships. Like, you know, when, when someone's done something that's wrong and you've got a close friend and you, you ought to go and have a hard conversation with them, but you're like, I can't do that. Why? Because I need them to like me. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to, I, I need that to be okay. Well, I can't really love them well because I, I need that to be the way. Think about it in work context. What, what, when you see things blow up, it's because people's needs are, are popping out, right? Someone says something, all of a sudden, they, they're not being respected or, or um, you know, their, their stuff might leak out and there's a neediness, so then they, they launch into whatever they do and, and off you go. Think about ministries like IJM. I'm hearing that. This, this, we are called to be generous, right? We're called to, to give of our things well, how do I do that when I'm insecure that I, do I have enough? Do I have enough financial stuff that I need? It's going to be really hard for me to do that. For me, I would say it's a, it's a neediness that keeps us from loving well. And when I just think of my own life and, and ask, when, when am I loving, when am I most able to love my spouse, my kids, my friends well? It is when I am experiencing fullness. It is when I have this sense that I'm loved. Uh, that, you know what, whatever happens, God's with me in it. Like, whatever, whatever outcome takes place in this, I'm fine. He's going to work it out. He's with me. He's not going to abandon me. I'm, I'm forgiven. I have a sense of identity that's secure. I have a sense of purpose that's secure. Um, and I just know everything's going to be right. I, I don't need to be right here. I don't need to be in control here. I don't need to be acknowledged. Uh, I don't need this person to like me. I don't need them to think I'm awesome. I'm actually, I'm full. And when I'm full, I'm actually free <laughs> to do the thing that Jesus says to do, which is to go, what do you need? How can I love you? How can I do what would be good and right and helpful for you? And so that, I think, is the journey it is this journey of an ever-deepening understanding and experience of what it means to be in Christ. And so this is how Paul says it. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him. Rooted, built up in him. I missed, a, I missed an outline right there, a highlight. In him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thanksgiving. That's it. I think walking in fellowship with Jesus over time is a, is a walking in him. And then I'll just mention this one because I know it's getting late. Uh, and then it's also a walking as he walked. <laughs> that we start to study and to watch his life and to read his life and to see the kinds of things he did and the kinds of things he said. Um, I'll just skip them. This, well, I'll say them. The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. It is more blessed to give than receive. Love your enemies, right? Pray for those who persecute you. He said these things and he lived these ways. And then we start to not only study and think about them, but we start to step into these ways of living, but not in independence, but independence on him and, and in him from a place of fullness, not fear. And as we do that, we begin to learn in the living, these things are true. Like the, I don't learn this on a, on, a, on a page, on a piece of paper, but this... This is the way to live life, and I'm learning it in the living, in the walking. So that's my answer for conversation. Walking in fellowship with Jesus over time. 
I want to leave you with how John starts his gospel, uh, chapter 1 of John, the first words of Jesus. Um, So uh, these two disciples of John the Baptist are, are seeing Jesus, and they start following behind Jesus. And it says this, turning around, Jesus saw them following. These are the first words Jesus speaks in John's gospel. And he says, what are you seeking? It's a pretty profound question. Maybe it just means what do you want, but um, interesting question. They say, Rabbi, where are you staying? That's actually the same words, where are you abiding? Where are you staying tonight? You remember what Jesus' answer was? Come and see. And I think John very intentionally includes that as, as the first words of Jesus because I think this is the fundamental invitation of Jesus. And that's those three simple words, come and see, for these two guys and then their friends was this invitation to a life with Jesus. Come, see, walk with me, walk in me, walk as I walk, and discover the life that I have for you. It is a life of light, and it is a life of love. And so that is, I think, still the journey and the invitation for every one of us, whether we've known Jesus for 40 years or we don't know him at all. The invitation is this, come and see, walk in me, walk with me, and learn what it means to love like me. Let's pray. Lord, we want a knowledge of you that gets inside of us and that changes us into people who are loving and obedient. And we all in this room feel the ways where that that process is so slow in our own journeys. And we long for that process to be sped up sometimes. And so we pray that you would simply invite us into a deeper experience of your goodness and your love and your commandments and that your spirit would move in us in fresh ways to to understand more fully the depth of all of the fullness we have in you and then to actually live each day more closely aligned with how you'd want us to live. This is not something we can do. It's something, it is your work and it is a work that happens our whole lives. And so today, we want to just say we're, we're up again. We're up for the journey to come and see. We're up for this long marathon. And give us joy. Uh, give us, especially today, a, a, a deep appreciation for what we have already in you. May we enjoy those great benefits.